The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Uh, my name is Adam Borsella, or Dr. Borsella, and I am the provost here. I served as a dean of students for a number of years, and I'm currently serving as a provost. And if you don't know what a provost is, that's fine. I don't expect it to you. It's far more important that the faculty know uh, what a provost is. But a provost is essentially a chief academic officer, which means it's my privilege to lead and to serve the faculty here. Uh, or I explain this uh, to, the, to, to high school students every once in a while when they come and they visit. I explain it this way to high school students, and then I immediately regret it. But I explain it like this. I say, I'm kind of like the principal of a college. And then they look at me like this sour look on their face. And I'm like, yeah, but, but it's a little different because... I actually, I, I just get to lead and serve the faculty and, and I, I, I don't do all that conduct stuff. But I used to do it and that's actually, we're gonna come back to that. But before we do that, join with me in a word of prayer and then uh, after we pray, we're going to read, we're gonna be spending some time in Romans and we're gonna read uh, from a passage in Romans to start us out with and I'll give you uh, that page number in the Karen Bible in a moment. First, join with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is good to worship you. Lord, you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. Lord, it's good to gather. You know that it encourages my, my heart to see these students lifting your name up. Lord, uh, I pray that uh, everything that we do, uh, Lord, uh, here in this space would bring you honor. Lord, I pray that as, as I do my best to speak uh, profound truths in simple ways, Lord, I pray that uh, you would open the students' ears insofar as I speak truth. And Lord, when what I say is untrue or not helpful, Lord, I pray that you would close their ears, Lord, that uh, what I say would go in one ear and out the other. Lord, but I pray that uh, as I do speak biblical truth, as we contemplate, reflect on the beauty of the cross, Lord, uh, I pray that it would be encouraging uh, to the students as this reflection and preparation for this uh, talk has been encouraging to me. Lord, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to spend some time in Romans. And, uh, and so in your Cairn Bibles, which always bring your Cairn Bibles to chapel. Okay. Cairn Bibles, turn to page 941. Page 941. And we're going to read Romans 3, 23 through 26. Just a couple verses. I imagine these are verses that are very familiar to you. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's from Romans. So I mentioned before that uh, for many years... I was the dean of students here. And in my capacity as the dean of students, I served as the uh, primary conduct officer. And in that role, part of my job was to 
adjudicate the disciplinary process. So uh, when, uh, when students would, uh, would violate our community life covenant, which I know you guys think that never happens, but, but it does, it happens on occasion. Uh, so as a dean of students, I would kind of adjudicate that process. And uh, in that role, throughout my tenure in that time, I really, I really wrestled with, I, I grappled with the challenge of balancing justice and mercy. Balancing justice and mercy. It should come as no surprise to you that many students confronted with the consequences of their actions sought mercy, right? They sought mercy, okay? But I also had a greater responsibility as a dean of students, a greater responsibility to the larger community, okay? And that community was also in a community that was seeking justice. So how did I do this as a dean of students? Balancing justice and mercy. I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't, I don't really think that it's possible. I don't really think it's possible to be perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And I think outside of one example in all of time in history, it can't be done. And we're gonna talk about that one example today. So while we can find or we can attempt to find varying degrees of balance between justice and mercy, it is really beyond our human capacity to be both perfectly merciful and perfectly just. Indeed, there's just one instance, guys. There's one instance in the history of the cosmos where complete justice was served and complete mercy was demonstrated simultaneously. And that moment was on the cross. And that's what I want us to spend just a few minutes today reflecting on. The beauty of the cross. The profound, profound beauty of the cross. So, let's just start. I read recently uh, a book called The Once and Future King. Anybody read this? Once and Future King, a couple of you, okay. It's a retelling of the Arthurian legend. You guys familiar with King Arthur? Yeah, I imagine that most of you, even if you haven't, read the story of the once and future king, you're familiar with King Arthur. So uh, the novel, The Once and Future King by T.H. White, it's a retelling of the classic Arthurian legend in which the legendary king of England wrestles kind of throughout his life with these questions of justice and morality and what does it mean to be a just ruler. At one point in the story, while he and his son Mordred are discussing trial by combat, his son remarks, and this is from the book, personal combat has no meaning. It is an unfair justice anyway. It is the thugs who win. In response, Arthur sighed and folded his hands. He continued in the quiet voice which he had not raised. You are still very young, Mordred. You have yet to learn that nearly all the ways of giving justice are unfair. King Arthur understood something that we often forget, that though we often cry out for justice, true justice is the province of the Empyrean, of the heavenly realm, meaning it belongs to God. Sin demands justice and only God, the source and measure of justice, can truly satisfy the demands of justice in keeping with his own character. So God's demand for justice 
is seen in that first covenantal relationship that he has with Adam and Eve, right? From the very beginning, God demanded perfect obedience from Adam, a requirement embedded in that covenant established between them. And remember that Adam, this is hopefully not news to you guys, you, you've talked about this in your classes, that, that Adam okay, represented more than just himself, that God made him the representative of all humanity. And so, that when, remember that when Adam transgressed in the garden, this held consequences beyond individual guilt. God designated Adam as the representative of the entire human race. Meaning that when he sinned, every human being shared in that wrongdoing, right? We all shared in that wrongdoing. So Romans 5, 12 through 19 highlights this corporal or corporate responsibility, explaining that sin entered the world through one man and death followed as a consequence of his sin. So the guilt of Adam's transgression extends to every human being, marking them as sinners. This violation of God's holy and righteous law renders humanity culpable. And this sinful state is deeply offensive to God. Consequently, again, this is just a reminder from your classes, guys. I know you're talking about this. Consequently, every individual deserves nothing but wrath and separation from God. Our God, being holy, cannot allow a sinful person to enter his holy presence, leading to the inevitable separation resulting from sin. So, and this is an important idea in the Bible. This is a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around, okay? We live this kind of modern materialistic world. And in our modern materialistic world, life equals matter that has biological processes, Right? You guys are probably bio majors, pre-med majors. You got a few of those in here? Anybody? Okay, they don't show up to chapel? Okay, all right, a couple of them. Okay, right, yeah. All right, so, so right, it's life, matter that has biological processes. Death, the permanent ending of vital processes in a cell or tissue, right? That's kind of this material, and again, that's not wrong, okay? It's just a very kind of materialistic understanding. What we read in the Bible is that life is communion with God and death is separation from God. Life is communion with God and death is separation from God. This means that death is a punishment, but more than that, it means that death is the result. It's the natural consequence of sin. Of course, at the same time, sin renders the sinner legally guilty before God and deserving of death, as explicitly stated in Romans. This reality sets up the great cosmic problem, the great cosmic problem. So last time I was up here, I don't know if you guys remember this, but we talked about, uh, we talked about fantasy. And we talked about Tolkien and we talked about C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, and, uh, and, and, and I thought to myself, okay, well, how do I top that? Because as a provost, I have to, I have to maintain a certain level of, of like, like nerd cred. So it's, it's, there's a certain level of like nerddom that I gotta do. So I was like, all right, how do I top that? Well, I'm gonna top it 
with a Star Trek reference. You guys ready for this? Okay. Star Trek. All right. So the Kobayashi Maru is a fictional training scenario in the Star Trek universe, and it was designed to be a no-win scenario. You guys remember this from, the, if not the, the newer movies, the, maybe the older movies, if anybody watched that, the older movies. So it was first featured, or one of the more prominent times it was featured, was in the 1982 Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. 1982, anybody go to opening day? That, nope, nobody went to that. Okay, that was even, that was even before my time. Okay, so, but... It has been referenced in many other Star Trek works over the years. The scenario involves a star trap, the Kobayashi Maru, stranded in the Klingon neutral zone, surrounded by Klingon vessels. The mission requires the cadet who's in training to decide between violating the neutral zone and potentially starting a war with the Klingons or leaving the stranded ship and its passengers to its fate. The situation is designed to test the cadet's decision-making under extreme pressure and moral dilemma. Notably, Captain James T. Kirk, a central character in Star Trek, is famous for being the only person to have successfully defeated the Kobayashi Maru. Anybody remember? How did he do that? Anybody? He cheated. He cheated. Yeah? I would have kicked him out. But he didn't get kicked out, okay? So he, uh, rather than accepting the no-win scenario, Kirk found a way to reprogram the simulation, changing the conditions of the test, allowing for a successful rescue of the Kobayashi Maru. So this act has kind of become famous in Star Trek lore, illustrating Kirk's aversion to accepting a no-win scenario. So the fictional no-win scenario Kirk faced is perhaps an echo of a very real and possible problem humankind put God in with Adam's first transgression. God is holy. His desire is to be in communion with us. But we are sinners and sin separates us from God. This is the great problem. And it is a problem that we, as sinners, cannot solve. People are totally incapable of doing anything to save themselves. So God, in his infinite wisdom, put into motion a plan. His plan, of course, needed to be in keeping with his character. With his character. So, God is just. And his justice demands death as a penalty for sin. And unlike Kirk's rescue of the Kobayashi Maru, God did not, could not cheat. He could not act outside his character. His plan needed to be both completely just and completely merciful because God is both completely just and completely merciful. So early in the narrative of the Bible, we see God putting this plan into motion. Atonement, as depicted in the Bible and particularly outlined in which book? Dr. Morowski is getting worried up here. 
Leviticus, yes, Leviticus, okay? Outline the book of Leviticus refers to the process of reconciliation between God and humanity. The concept of atonement involves the removal of sins and impurities, mending the relationship between the sinner and God. In the book of Leviticus, the practice of atonement is described as a gracious act of the Lord to address the separation that is caused by sin. The book of Leviticus emphasizes the seriousness of sin, the need for purification and the divine provision for reconciliation through prescribed atoning rituals. And this is the groundwork, right? The groundwork for for God's plan. So as a result of sin, as we've talked about, human beings bear legal guilt before God and God's holy character dictates that the consequences of sin entail death. When God decided to save us, the method had to align with his holy character and the inherent nature of sin. Death becomes a necessary payment for sin. However, and this is important to understand, if the sinner were to die, so if we were to die, physically, spiritually, eternally, there are different ways you could talk about that, of course. For their own sin, there would be no salvation for that sinner, right? There'd be no salvation. Hence, salvation can only be achieved through, and this is your $10 phrase of the day. You guys ready? You're in college, you're paying a lot of money for school, I gotta introduce you to some big words, okay? Can only be accomplished through vicarious representational substitutionary atonement. You guys got it? Okay, everybody say it with me. Vicarious representational substitutionary atonement. Okay, okay, that's what we're talking about. And that's what we're talking about today. All right? So, you're in college, you need these $10 words. This is where somebody else takes on the burden of the sinner's transgressions. This method stands as the exclusive path to salvation. Christ's sacrificial death was imperative to remove the sins of his people. Once God committed to saving humanity, which he did not need to do, but once he committed to saving humanity, it became essential that salvation be realized through that substitutionary atonement. So, of course, just as a sinful person cannot absolve their own sins, they are likewise unable to remove the sins of another person. So, for Jesus to provide a substitutionary sacrifice, he had to be what? Perfect. He had to be perfect and completely without sin. Throughout his entire earthly life, his entire ministry, every action undertaken by Jesus was for the benefit of his people. He demonstrated absolute sinless obedience to God the Father in every aspect. Jesus, who is often referred to as the spotless lamb and the embodiment of the atonement, stood as the only sacrifice capable of satisfying the demands of justice and addressing the wages of sin on behalf of others. So in parallel to Adam's transgression, and there is a parallel here, that's made very clear in scripture, uh, Adam's transgression impacted all of humanity in that corporate sense, right? Marked them all as sinners. So Jesus, the God-man, served as the flawless representative of his people, marking them as righteous. So upon the cross, Christ fulfilled God's requirements for justice in this way. In this crucifixion moment, Jesus accomplishes expiation for our sins, removing 
our guilt before God. Additionally, on the cross, Jesus provides propitiation for our sins, leading to a complete turning away of God's wrath. In this way, upon the cross, Christ exemplifies complete mercy from God. The divide between God and humanity stemming from sin is addressed by Jesus Christ as the ultimate atonement for sins, surpassing the sacrificial system that is outlined in the book of Leviticus. The death and resurrection of Jesus are accepted, right? They're accepted by God as flawless and the ultimate atonement, extending forgiveness and reconciliation to those who believe in him. Specifically on the cross, Jesus facilitates the reconciliation of man to God, removing the separation between them. This is the solution to the great cosmic problem. In this way, the crucifixion acts as the means by which God and man are brought together. God did not have to save us. He didn't. It would have been perfectly just, in fact, and perfectly fair for God to bring condemnation and wrath upon every human being. The wages of sin is death. But instead, God chose to save us. He did this for the honor of his name and because of his great love for us. As the sinless substitute, Jesus' death satisfies God's demand for justice. And in sparing us who deserve that death, the cross also exemplifies perfect mercy. If you remember nothing else from this talk, remember this. The cross represents complete justice served and embodies complete mercy demonstrated. This is what the psalmist meant, I think, when he sang, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's from Psalm 85. And consider this. Since the cross satisfied the requirements of our holy God, such a sacrifice is never again necessary. Never again necessary. So what does this mean? So what does this mean? It means that the cross is the singular act of complete justice and complete mercy within all eternity. This is the beauty of the cross. It is God's great symphony, a truly perfect solution to an otherwise impossible cosmic dilemma. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only, only just begin to understand what you have done for us. And this only, and this small bit of understanding comes through your gracious act of providing your word to us. Lord, I pray that as we uh, go throughout our day, that we would stop and reflect on the beauty of the cross. Lord, on your love for us. Lord, on your justice, on your righteousness. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the cross only needed to happen once and that you and your divine wisdom 
Lord, brought together justice and mercy, Lord, for our behalf. Lord, we thank you for that. As we go from here, we lift this day up to you. Amen.